The other day, <clears throat> I was driving to Starbucks in La Vista. I mean, that happens all the time, but this was one particular day last week, that one that's on 84th Street, you know, and I noticed all of a sudden a giant construction crane in the sky, just half a block there north of my coffee shop. Have you guys seen that crane up there? I wondered, where did that come from? <laughs> I don't know why it's there. It's some ongoing construction of the city center complex. I don't really care why it's there. I just wanted to know how it just got there all of a sudden. It's like, bam, right there. It's massive. It just seemed to magically appear in the sky. Now, I knew that it didn't just appear, but I wondered, how is it that a giant thing like that can even get built? It felt so mysterious to me. Now, there was a day when such questions that appear from time to time in my mind would have to go unanswered, but not now, because we live in the age of the internet. So I went on YouTube, and I searched, how do cranes get built? And in less than a second, I had multiple videos to watch that not only explained to me, but even showed me in time-lapse photography how construction cranes get built. It's amazing. It turns out that ones that are as small as the one in La Vista get, by, get built by a mobile crane that has a telescoping arm, you know, that goes up sort of like a paint pole or a selfie stick, and it can lift the pieces high enough uh, in the sky to build the crane, and these brave construction workers scurry around on the frame and bolt the pieces together to form a working crane. Other cranes, though, who need to be a lot taller like to build skyscrapers, they have a way that they can construct themselves, you guys. It's amazing. They can lift up sections of their mast, fitting them in just below the operator's cab and lifting themselves up as they go. Now, don't Google this during worship, <laughs> but when you go home, Google how do crane get, cranes get built and you can marvel along with me. It's amazing. It's not actually mysterious or magical at all. It's understandable. It's explainable. Thank you, YouTube. There are millions and millions of questions that we used to have to simply wonder about, but now we can find the answer in just moments. Now, is my life better for somehow knowing just how construction cranes are built? No, I can't say that it is, but my curiosity is satisfied, and I love to learn things, even random things that have no bearing on my life, but I have to recognize that as much as Google and YouTube and even crowdsourcing on Facebook has brought to us access to more and more information with less and less effort, there are still plenty of questions to which we do not have answers. And most of them are questions to which we won't get answers, even in this lifetime, as much as we would wish for answers. Why do we get cancer? And why especially do kids get it? Why do our brains fail sometimes so that when we lose our memories and our functioning, even to the point of not knowing our own children, and why does that happen to some people, but other people live until they're like 99 and they're still able to follow the news and do the crossword puzzle every day? Why addiction? Why suicide? Why homicide? Why sexual predators? Why hurricanes? Why tornadoes? Why? as happened to a brother of a colleague of mine, do young people on their honeymoon, fit, healthy, beautiful, full of the joy of being married, about to start the adventure of their lives, why do they get hit while riding a moped in Hawaii and wind up in the hospital for months, undergoing endless surgeries, just hoping that they'll be able to walk again? Why do relationships fall apart? Why do we hurt each other?
Why can't we keep the people we love safe? These are all basic questions of human suffering, questions that at one time or another we have reason to ask, and questions to which I guess we would really, really like to have some answers. I don't think that anybody makes it through life without having some kind of encounter with suffering that leaves us dumbfounded, bewildered, and deeply longing to understand why, which is why the book of Job was written. Our questions about the why of life, about the why of human suffering, they're not new to us. They're as old as humankind itself. And to help us reflect on suffering and where God is in the middle of suffering, we have this book in the Bible, the story of Job. For the last two weeks, we've been reading the story of Job about how he loses everything he has, his wealth, his family, his health, when the accuser challenges God about the basis of his faithfulness. Remember, the, the accuser, the Hasatan, asked well, does Job love God because Job's life is easy and great? Or does Job love God because God is God? Last week, we considered Job's terrible friends, who instead of consoling him, they blame him for all the trouble he's encountered. They say, just admit your fault, see yourself as guilty, realize you've brought all this on yourself. And after all that bad advice, Job gets to the place where he wants a full accounting from God as to why all this trouble has happened in his life. He pleads his innocence once again, and he wants to see the charges that were brought against him, why this all happened to him. He begs God to explain. He says, let the Almighty answer me. And Job actually gets his wish, although I suspect it's not the answer he wants. The story imagines God coming in a mighty storm, a whirlwind, it says. Now, I'm from Kansas, so I always imagine this is a tornado, right? Can't be anything else but a tornado. But just imagine with me Job standing there, wind blowing all over him, dust rising up around him, trees bending to the ground, dark clouds covering the sky, rain pelting the earth. And there Job stands with his face lifted up to heaven, demanding an answer. And a funnel cloud comes close to him, and he hears the voice of God. And in chapter 38, we read, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by word without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or where were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? The speech goes on and on like this for a long time. God asks about light and darkness, about snow and hail and rain and the desert and stars in the sky and clouds and lightning. God says, can you hunt prey for the lion? Who provides the raven its prey? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you give the horse its might? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? When God pauses in asking Job's questions, which Job cannot answer, Job has nothing to say. He says, I lay my hand on my mouth. But God isn't done. And God goes on for another chapter listing off the things that God can do that Job has no clue about. Finally, Job responds in chapter 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job realizes he stepped out of his lane in demanding an answer from God, and he apologizes. We learn from this that some things are going to remain unknowable to us as humans. Some things are beyond our understanding. Some things will always be a mystery to us. Is that a comforting answer from God? No, the choir says no. <laughs> in a way, no, and in a way, maybe yes, but not in a way we normally expect to be comforted by God. Like We like to think about God responding to us like Jesus welcoming little children into his arms, right? Or bending down to touch the paralytic who's laying on the mat in front of him. We like to think about God responding to us like that story from 1 Kings 19 where Elijah is exhausted and afraid after battling with the prophets of other gods. And he's on, his, on the run for his life from Jezebel. And God sends angels to help Elijah, to help him sleep and to give him food. And then Elijah hides in that cave high on the mountain and God comes by and speaks to him in a whisper, in a still small voice. And God encourages him, and God send him, sends him ahead. Those kind of stories, they remind us of God's strength, but also God's gentleness and God's ability to provide solace. solace. But here, here in the book of Job, we read of an encounter with God that's, that's about as far from warm and fuzzy as we could expect. There's no gentleness here. There's no indulgence it's just an encounter of God's power and God's strength and God's majesty and God's might. It's reminding Job that God is God and Job is not. It's reminding Job that he's not the center of the universe. He's not the knower of all things. He's not the powerful one here. Basically, he doesn't get to have an explanation for everything that's happened to him. God is the keeper of the why. And God does not owe Job an answer. Now, Job is very humbled by this. And after hearing from God directly, he repents of his challenge, he withdraws his complaint. We don't know if Job is satisfied or not. He realizes the conversation's over. And I'm not sure we need to be satisfied with the answers that come from the book of Job. But even perhaps if we're not satisfied, we can still recognize that they are true answers. We can see that there's wisdom here. Even if we're not ready to say, oh, that's great, I feel better. Now, importantly, Job, or God is not mad at Job, right? God never agrees with, Job friend, with Job's friends that he must have done something wrong. God never says Job was guilty. God simply tells Job the truth and helps him see how the universe works. Mainly, that Job is not in any way in charge of this world. And God basically does not owe Job, small and powerless as he is, any explanation. Why not? Well, the book doesn't explicitly say I mean, perhaps, perhaps there's things that are too big for us to understand as human beings. Perhaps we are just, like, not capable in our brains of comprehending it. There are a lot of things we do get to know about God and how God works, but not everything. Parts of God will always remain unknowable to us. And honestly, that does bring me some comfort. It frees me from having to know it all. It invites me to trust God, who is so much more than I am. Now, God's not mad at Job, but he is, God is mad at Job's friends. 
Turns out God is not any happier with the advice they gave Job than we were with them last week. God demands that the friends make a huge sacrificial offering to atone for their foolishness. God says to Eliphaz, one of the friends, my anger burns against you and your two friends. And they have to repent. They have to make amends. And after all this, at the very end of the book, God restores the fortunes of Job. He gets twice as much as he had before. He is surrounded by his friends and his family that comfort him and feast with him. He winds up with 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 1,000 donkeys, and he has 10 more kids. Job gets to live on for 140 years, and he has the blessing of seeing four generations of his family born. And the last line says, and Job died an old man and full of days. Thus ends the story of Job. He gets left in a good spot. Okay, what about us? What do we make of this answer the book finally gives us? Then when it comes to our asking God all the questions of why, we don't get to have answers. Stanley Hauerwas, who's a professor at Duke, he says that even in the midst of our deepest suffering, we have to resist the demand for explanations. He says the ability to live life without explanation is required to see things as they are. I think what he means is that in order to come to grips with reality, we have to be willing to accept that we're not going to know everything there is to know about this world. We don't get to understand the why of it. And if we insist on always asking those questions, we're going to drive ourselves crazy. I was a sophomore in high school when four of my classmates were killed in a car accident on the way to school. Some of you probably have stories like that in your family as well. It was not my first experience with death. I had had close family members die already by then. But somehow, it being so sudden and it being with people so young, my age, it made me feel a grief that I had not felt before. It made me ask questions that I'd never asked before. And one night in youth group, my, my youth pastor and uh, my youth sponsors were so kind and good to process with me and talk with me about my grief. And we were talking about the accident and the senselessness of it all. And a sponsor who was just in his mid-20s, he, he shared with me an image that I'll, I have never forgotten. He said he always thought about life like the backside of a cross-stitch pattern or an embroidery or a quilt. He said what you see on the back isn't very pretty at all. Right? It's a bunch of threads crossing over each other, going zigzag in all kinds of seemingly random directions. On the back side, you see the knots where the thread has been tied off and all the starts and stops that don't make any sense. It's only when you turn it over to the front side do you see the beautiful creation. Then you see the pattern, you see the art, the beauty that's been made by all those messy threads. And he said, Amy, we're living on the back side. God's the only one who can see the front right now. So what do we do to keep hope alive while we're living on the backside? First of all, we trust in the one who's making the pattern. We trust in God to be doing something beautiful and hopeful with the world even beyond our scene. We trust in the story of Jesus that gives us this powerful sign of God's intention for healing and restoration and resurrection. All manner of things shall be well, our faith tells us. It might take longer than we want, but Jesus coming out of that tomb is proof to us that all manner of things shall be well. And then even when we're living in grief, as we have the strength, 
We seize the power that we have to make good and beautiful things now, good and beautiful connections with others. A few weeks ago, Polly Pierce, our youth director, she sent me a TikTok that illustrates this perfectly. I'm not on TikTok, but you can see TikToks even if you're not on. And I'm not going to show it to you because I don't know exactly how that works with copyright infringement and the live stream, and I don't want to get a shutdown on Facebook all of a sudden because I showed something I wasn't supposed to show. Okay, But it is a very short video of Andy Grammer. If you're on TikTok, I'm sure you can go find it. How many of you are on TikTok? <laughs> I don't need to know. It's fine. Um, <laughs> So Andy Grammer, who's a musician, he says that he, uh, or he likes to remember and celebrate his mother, who died, um, I don't know how long ago, but, but way too young. His mother died, and he says often when he's out in the world, he will see women who are about the same age as his mom would be now, and they're having coffee, or they're getting breakfast with other people, and he will go and he will buy their coffee, or he will buy their breakfast as a tribute to his mom. Now, of course, Andy Grammer has a whole lot of money, so he can do this as often as he wants to, but still the idea is so lovely. He says sometimes it can get a little weird. People are like, why are you doing this for me? But more often than not, the women are so appreciative, and he feels really connected to his mother by doing it. And he said on the video that every once in a while, he ends up doing it for a woman who has lost a son that would be about Andy's age. And they end up standing in the middle of a restaurant, sharing their stories and crying and holding each other up in their love and in their loss. Grief, <clears throat> grief gets lighter when it's shared. Andy Grammer has found a beautiful way to do that. It does not solve the question of why his mother died too young. It does help him live without all the answers. This week, I want to invite you to take a moment to name your big questions to God. Write them down if you want to. Pray them in a prayer. Share them with somebody else. God does not mind our asking the questions. We just not ought to expect full answers. God loves us through the mystery of grief. God provides comfort without providing answers. God provides what we need, hearing us whenever we call. And that for now is enough. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.